friends, and welcome to episode 5 of A Grim Podcast. I'm Sylvie. Sad stories touch many people. The bond between characters is quite heartwarming, and that's why most people love to read those tales. My friends are a great example of these people, and they've been so kind as to recommend the Japanese fairy tales I'm going to be reading today. First, we'll be diving into the story of Hachisuke and the White Fox. Then I'll read The Snow Woman, a short narrative that always touches me. Lastly, I'm going to recall the story of Tanabata, another romance about two lovers who aren't supposed to care for one another. Without further ado, let's start reading. One day, long, long ago, the Lord of Obama was strolling through the streets of his town. At that time, Obama was a fast-growing, bustling seaport. The kind-hearted lord, whose castle was in the center of town, often took a leisurely walk after lunch to mix with the local people. On this particular day, he was making his way back to the castle when he heard a sudden great yipping and yapping. A moment later, a snow-white fox came skidding around a corner, and right behind it were four very angry men. "'We've got you now, you little thief!' yelled one of the men. He pounced on the animal and started to hit and kick it as hard as he could. The little fox yelped and howled in pain. You there, the Lord of Obama called out, approaching the men. Don't you think that's enough? Look at the poor thing. You've nearly killed him. But, your lordship, said the man, still holding the fox, you should see what he did to our store. He kicked everything over and shoot up our dried fish. What a mess! He did, did he? I see. All right, then. I'll tell you what. I'll pay for the damage, but I want you to hand that fox over to me. The men, of course, agreed, and the kind-hearted lord carried the fox back to his castle. He told his servants to spare no expense in caring for the animal and to spare lots of dried tofu, which is a favorite of foxes. With this kind treatment, the fox got better in no time. Within a few days, in fact, he was as healthy and frisky as ever. And so, one evening, when he'd completely recovered, the Lord of Obama took him to the foot of a mountain just outside town. Now listen, little one, he said as he let the fox go. You're not to be coming back and steal things from people. Understand? All right, then. Go on home now. The fox trotted hesitantly up the moonlit mountain path, stopping time and again to turn and gaze back toward the castle of the kind-hearted lord. Obama was never troubled with mischievous foxes again, and the town continued to grow and prosper as the months went by. But then came the fateful day when the lord of Obama thought he had lost it all. He had to see to it that a certain message was delivered to Edo, the capital, within seven days. If the message didn't get to Ito in time, the Lord and his family would be disgraced and ruined. But the Lord's messenger, a man named Goheji, had suddenly fallen ill and wouldn't be able to make the long journey. The Lord of Obama was at his wit's end. Oh no! Who else can get to Ito in a week, he moaned. Isn't there anyone else? As a matter of fact, there wasn't. No one in Obama could run nearly as fast as Goheji. But just as the Lord was about to give up hope, a stranger arrived at the castle gates. 
When he was brought before the Lord, he bowed deeply and introduced himself. My name is Hachisuke, he said. I was passing through your town when I heard of your lordship's need for a swift messenger. If I can be of any assistance... Are you fast? Quite. Ah, but I don't suppose you can get to Edo in seven days, can you? said the lord. I can. The lord hesitated. After all, he'd never even seen this man before. But the fellow certainly seemed confident enough. All right, Hachisuke, he said, slapping his knee. You're hired. I'm depending on you, my boy. The box containing the vital letter was brought, and the next moment Hachisuke was off and running. Seven days later, the Lord of Obama sat in his office, counting on his fingers. He had hardly slept all week. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. So it's been a week today, he muttered. Let's just hope Hachisuke reaches Edo by this afternoon. No sooner had he said this than a servant rushed excitedly into the room. Your lordship, he cried, Hachisuke has returned. Returned? Oh no. The lord buried his face in his hands. I might have known he'd never make it. Well, it's all over now. I'm a ruined man. You misunderstand me, your lord, said the servant. Hachisuke has been to Edo and back. He's waiting outside with the reply to your letter. What? That's impossible. Hachisuke was summoned. He fell to his knees before the Lord and presented him with the letter from Edo. The Lord was as delighted as he was flabbergasted. There's no doubt about it. This is the official reply from Edo. My family is saved. Hachisuke, how can I ever repay you? To be of service to your lordship, replied the messenger. It is all I desire. But how did you do it, my boy? Not even Gohaji can make it to Edo and back in less than two weeks. Hachisuke only smiled and bowed even lower. From that day on, Hachisuke became the castle's most trusted messenger. During the months that followed, he made many trips to Edo and back. One evening, he had just returned from a mission when the Lord called for him and said, Well done, lad. Now rest easy for a few days. Thank you, your lordship. By the way, Hachisuke, I've been wondering, what's the most difficult part of the trip to Edo? There's no difficulty to speak of, your lordship, replied Hachisuke. Except, yes, except perhaps the wild dogs near Odawara. Dogs? <laughs> a man like you, Hachisuke, afraid of dogs? Surely you're joking. <laughs> Hachisuke blushed and scratched his head in embarrassment. Several days later, the messenger set off for the capital with another letter. But though he promised to be back within ten days, two weeks went by and there was still no sign of him. Well into the third week, the Lord of Obama started to get worried. What if Hachisuke had met with some terrible accident, he thought with a shudder. It was only then that he had remembered what the trusty messenger said, had said about the wild dogs near Odawara. Good heavens, could it be? The Lord immediately summoned his servants and ordered them to saddle some horses. As soon as this was done, he set out with them toward the Odara, Odawara to look for Hachisuke. They searched for several days with no luck. It was on their way home in the mountains between Odawara and Obama that the Lord pointed at something in the weeds beside the road. What's that? 
he said. The servants could see a white object laying in the weeds. One of them got off his horse and went to investigate. Your lordship, he shouted a moment later. It's the litter box. Any trace of Hachisuke? The lord called out, dismounting and hurrying to the spot. When he got there, however, he turned ghostly pale and fell, trembling to his knees. Good heavens, he gasped. The white fox! The limp, lifeless body of a small white fox was draped over the litter box, as if to protect it. Everything was clear to the lord now. He took the dead animal in his arms and sobbed. Hachisuke, he cried. Hachisuke! Yes, Hachisuke and the white fox were one and the same. To repay the lord of Obama for his kindness, the fox had transformed himself into a fleet-footed messenger. Tracked down and savagely attacked by the wild dogs, he had died of his wounds as he struggled to make it back to the castle. Obama Castle no longer stands. But where the castle grounds used to be, there remains a shrine that was built by the kind-hearted lord. The shrine is named after the faithful Hachisuke, and it's dedicated to Inadi, the fox deity, who looks out for messengers everywhere. So, I've actually read that story before, and it really touched me. It made me actually really sad, and it's just that um, Hachisuke, or the white fox, did just tried his best and just wanted to repay the kind-hearted lord and i just feel like that is a really just an incredible thing for him to think of or do for the lord of obama and um i just he didn't deserve to be killed by the wild dogs okay well now let's continue on to the snow woman Long ago, in a small village in the cold, cold north country, a woodcutter named Mosaku lived with his son, Minokichi. One freezing winter's morning, when the snow was too deep for cutting wood, Mosako and Minokichi went hunting. They spent the entire day trudging through the mountains without spotting so much as even a rabbit. It was already late afternoon when, quite suddenly, Great dark clouds rolled over the sky and snow began to fall, covering up the path and erasing the hunter's footprints behind them. Although they could hardly see where they were going, they were lucky enough to stumble upon a woodcutter's hut. They decided to stay there until the storm blew over. We may have to spend the night here, said Mosaku as he stacked some wood in the fireplace. I'm afraid so, father. The two men sat talking beside the flickering fire while the wind howled around the door. It had been a long time since they'd had a good heart-to-heart -heart talk, and the hours went by quickly. It was already quite late when Mosaku lay down on the floor facing his son. You know, son, he said, when a man gets to be my age, he begins to want grandchildren. Isn't it time you thought about getting married? Minokichi blushed and stared dreamily at the fire. Little did he know that those were the last words his poor father would ever speak. They were both very tired from their long day, and soon they were fast asleep. Outside, the snowstorm continued to rage. It was after midnight when an especially strong gust of wind suddenly blew the door ajar. Snow came swirling into a, the hut, putting out the fire. Minokichi woke up shivering. 
It's freezing, he muttered, sitting up. That's when he saw her. She was standing in the shadows just inside the open door. Who is it? Who's there? Out of the shadows stepped a beautiful woman dressed in flowing white silk. Her hair was long and black, and her skin was as pale and smooth as polished ivory. But as he looked into her cold, dark eyes, Minokichi felt a shiver run down his spine. The woman ignored him, however, and walked slowly toward his father, who was still asleep. Minokichi watched helplessly as the woman bent down and exhaled a frosty white cloud that hung over Mosaku like a hungry ghost. Father! he cried, trembling with fear. Father! But there was no response. The woman turned and moved toward Minokichi. Help! Help! Minokichi stood up to run, but the woman stepped in front of him, blocking his path. She stared deep into his eyes and to his horror and bewilderment. Her cruel gaze softened and a tender smile formed on her lips. You are young and full of life, she whispered. Youth is a wonderful thing. I shall let you live. But remember, if you ever tell anyone about this night, you too shall die. Another gust of wind and snow swirled around the room, and the woman was gone. Minokichi's knees buckled, and he fell to the floor unconscious. Had it been some terrible dream? Perhaps. But Minokichi awoke in the morning to find the door open, the fire out, and his father lying next to him, frozen to death. Most of the people in the village came to Mosaku's funeral to pay their respects and to comfort Minokichi. It was the worst blizzard I've ever seen, Minokichi told them, shaking his head sadly and wiping the tears from his eyes. But he told no one about the mysterious woman in white. A year passed, and another winter came and went. One dark and rainy spring day, Minokichi looked out his window and noticed a young lady sheltering beneath the eaves of his house. Seeing she had no umbrella, he invited her to wait inside until the rain stopped. The young lady's name, Minokichi learned, was Yuki. She told him she was on her way to the capital. When he found out she was traveling alone, Minokichi offered to help her in any way she could. They drank tea and talked on and on. And almost before either of them realized it, they had fallen deeply in love. Yuki never did get to the capital. She stayed with Minokichi, and they were married soon after. It seemed a match made in heaven. As time went by, they were blessed with five healthy, handsome children. Yuki was a cheerful, devoted wife and mother, and Minokichi was happier than he had ever been in his life. The only thing that had ever worried him was his wife's delicate health. On hot summer days, Yuki would grow weak and listless. But Minokichi always cared for her lovingly, and the cool breezes of evening never failed to revive her. One night, as Yuki was doing her sewing, Minokichi looked at her and thought for the thousandth time how lovely she was. Yuki, he said, you haven't changed at all. You seem as young and beautiful as the day we met. Gazing at her profile, he suddenly remembered something that had happened long ago. Something he'd never told anyone about. You know, I just realized, he said, you remind me a lot of someone I once saw. Or thought I saw. Oh, who was she? asked Yuki, looking up from her sewing. Well, I told you about the blizzard my father and I were caught in when I was twenty. 
that's when I saw her. I'm still not sure it wasn't a dream, but Minokiji hesitated. Have you ever heard those stories about the snow woman? You had to say it, didn't you? Yuki's voice was a harsh whisper, and there was a funny look in her eyes. And you promised. You promised you wouldn't tell anyone. What do you mean? Yuki, what's the matter? Where are you going? Yuki had stood up and was walking toward the door. As she moved, her kimono began turning white. White as snow. Yuki, Minokichi gasped. Yuki, you're... You're... Yes. Yuki was the legendary snow woman. And now that Minokichi had broken his promise, she had no choice. She must either leave or destroy him. Fortunately, not even the snow woman could bring herself to kill the only man she loved. Yuki! Don't go! cried Minokichi, running after her. Why, Minokichi? Why did you say it? I wanted to stay with you. I wanted to be your wife forever. Yuki's cold, dark eyes filled with tears. I'll never forget you, Minokichi. I'll never forget the happiness I've known with you. Take care of yourself and the children. Goodbye, my love. The door flew open, and a cold wind rushed through the room. There was silence, and Yuki had vanished. Minokichi ran out the door to the empty street. Yuki! Yuki! Minokichi was never to see his wife again. But people in the North Country say that on cold, snowy nights, the one they call Yuki Onna, the snow woman, still wanders the mountainsides crying out in a chilling whine. She's searching, they say, for a man who will keep her secret safe and her cold heart warm. All right, so now I'm going to move on to the story of Tanabata. Across the sky of a clear summer night, the Milky Way flows like a mighty river. On the other side of its vast, raging current are the bright stars of Altair and Vega. According to an old legend, these two heavenly bodies were once an earthly man and his wife. Now, it is said they are allowed to meet only once a year, on the seventh day of the seventh month. This is the story of those star-crossed lovers. Once upon a time, a young man named Nikeron was walking home after working in the fields. As he passed by the shore of a lake, he spotted something hanging from a tree. What's that? he wondered. It looks like a rope, but it was not like any rope he had seen before. It shone like a star in the evening light. Mirekan was delighted with his find. It must be worth a fortune, he thought. He took the rope down, folded it up, and placed it in his basket. He was about to walk away when someone called to him. Excuse me, sir. What? Who said that? I did. Out of the tall grass by the lake stepped the most beautiful young woman Mirakan had ever seen. Please, she said, please give me back my celestial robe. Celestial robe? Yes. Oh, oh, please, sir. Without it, I can't return to my home in heaven. You see, she went on, her eyes brimming with tears. I don't belong on earth. I only came here to bathe a while in this lovely lake. Please, I beg you, give me back my robe. Mirekan's heart was beating wildly. I, I don't know what you're talking about, he lied. I haven't seen any robe. 
The truth is that Midekon had fallen in love the moment he'd laid eyes on the maiden. He feared that if he gave her the robe, she'd fall, fly off into the sky and disappear forever. Shall I help you look for it? He said. Oh, would you, sir? Midekon pretended to search for the rope, but of course, it was in his basket all the time. It's no use, he said at last. Someone must have stolen it. Tanabata, for that was the maiden's name, sat on the ground and began to sob. Don't cry, said Mirekan, taking her hand. If you've nowhere to go, you can come stay with me. So from that day on, Tanabata lived in Mirekan's house. And as time went by, she came to love the gentle, handsome youth as much as he loved her. They were married together and spent many wonderful years together. Happy as she was with her earthly life, however, Tanabata could never forget her home in heaven. Often at night when Mirekan was asleep, she would open the window and gaze up, sighing at the starry sky. Then, one day when Mirekan was out working in the field, Tanabata noticed a, her pet doves pecking at something between the roof beams. As she watched, the dove thrust its beak into a crack in the ceiling and pulled out a piece of beautiful glittering cloth. My robe, Tanabata cried. So Mirekan knew it where it was all along. He was hiding it from me. That evening, Mirekan returned from the fields to find his wife waiting outside in her celestial garment. Tanabata, you, you found the robe. Tanabata nodded sadly, lifted her hands toward heaven, and began to rise in the air. As she rose, she looked down at her husband and said, Mirekan, if you really love me, weave a thousand pairs of straw sandals and bury them beneath a bamboo shoot. If you do that, we'll be able to meet again. I'll be waiting for you, my love. Mirekan watched helplessly as Tanabata ascended higher and higher. At last, all he could see was her robe shining like a star in the evening sky. Mirekan knew he would never be happy until he was reunited with his beautiful wife. So that very night, he gathered all the straw he could find and began to weave the sandals. Night and day, day and night, he weaved and counted, counted and weaved. At last, he counted a thousand pairs. He hurried outside, found a bamboo shoot, and dug a large hole for the sandals beneath it. No sooner had he covered the sandals with earth than the bamboo began to grow at an incredible speed. In a matter of seconds, the tip had disappeared into the clouds. Now all I have to do is climb to the top, thought Mirekan. From one branch to the next, he climbed and climbed and climbed. When he And when he finally got to the top, he could see heaven's floor just above him. But he couldn't quite reach it. It seems that in his haste to meet Tanabata, he had made a mistake when he'd counted the sandals. He'd actually woven 999 pairs. Tanabata, he shouted. Tanabata, are you there? Tanabata was working her loom when he, she heard someone calling her name. Oh, she gasped. Can it be? She peered over the edge of her cloud, and there, sure enough, was her husband waving to her from the top of the great bamboo. Mirekan, hold on! Tanabata took the long piece of cloth from her loom and lowered it to Mirekan. He grabbed hold of it, pulled himself up to her cloud, and ran to her. Tanabata, I missed you so much! Oh, Mirekan! They were holding each other ten tenderly when a bearded and fearful-looking old man appeared. It was Tanabata's father. What is the meaning of this? he roared. This is my husband, father, said Tanabata meekly. His name is Mirekan. I'm honored to meet you, sir, said Mirekan, bowing. 
But Tanabata's father was not at all happy to learn that his daughter had married a lowly earthling. Tell me, young man, he said with a scowl, how did you make your living on earth? I worked in the fields, sir. Good. I've got just the job for you, then. Take all the seeds in those baskets and plant them in the star field. You have three days to finish. He, yes, sir, gulped Mirekan. There must have been a million seeds in the huge baskets. Mirekan set to work immediately, and for three days he never even stopped to rest. Finally, late on the third day, he planted the last seed and lay down exhausted. But no sooner had he done so than Tanabata's father appeared again. Not this star field, you fool! he shouted. I meant this star field over there! Now pick up all those seeds and replant them! Poor Mirekan. It would take years to find all the seeds. Luckily, however, Tanabata had an idea. She called for a pet dove. I want you to bring all your friends, she told the bird. Ask them to dig out those seeds and replant them. Before long, the skies were filled with thousands of doves diving and swooping and soaring from one star, star field to another. And the job was finished in no time at all. Tanabata's father was not amused, however. He spent the night thinking up another difficult task for Mirekan, and in the morning he called the earthling before him. I need you to stand guard over the melon patch in the valley of heaven, he said. You must remain there for three days and three nights, and you're not to eat or drink anything while you're there. While Tanabata heard of this new command, she was very worried. Do be careful, Mirekan, she said, and whatever you do, don't eat any of the sacred melons. If you do, something terrible will happen. Please promise me you won't. Mirekan swore he wouldn't touch the sacred fruit. But after two days of guarding the patch in the scorching sun, his throat was so parched he thought he would die of thirst. At last he couldn't stand it any longer. He cut open one of the ripe, juicy melons. Swoosh! A great torrent of water came gushing out of the melon, and in the twinkling of an eye, the torrent became a raging river. Mirekan was swept off his feet, and the powerful current carried him to the far side of the valley of heaven. Mirekan! Tanabata! To this day, Tanabata and Mirekan sit on opposite banks of the river we call the Milky Way. You can see them each night gazing helplessly across at each other, waiting for the one day in the year her father allows them to meet. that brings this episode to an end thank you everyone so much for listening till our next adventure bye grimlings